Daniel chapter 2. I was joking this week with Ed when I learned he wouldn't be here today that I was, uh, it was too bad that he wouldn't be here to hear Daniel 2 because for the first time in history I'm going to answer all the questions and explain all of the debates and it'll be great. And he said he admired my confidence and my ability to have my tongue firmly in my cheek, which is also true. I won't ask you to stand for the readings. Uh, these, this is one of the longest readings probably in this section of Daniel that we'll be looking at, Daniel 1 through 6. So remain seated and give careful attention to God's word. I will only read verses 1 through 18 to get us started. This is God's word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. <clears throat> For no great powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace into people who live as strangers and exiles in the world with the hope of Christ's return and the mission of Christ's kingdom, which has been established now through the gospel and will be fully realized forever when our King returns. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the book of Daniel is an incredibly practical book. 
It's practical because this book provides us a framework, uh, an important framework for understanding our place in this world and our mission as the church awaiting the return of our true king who will live forever. That's why I've called this series through Daniel 1 through 6, Faith, Courage, and Exile, Lessons from Daniel. You see, if we turn to Daniel merely to chart out uh, what we understand to be God's program for the future, almost taking that in the abstract as an item to study, as if the book were written simply to give us charts and timelines, maybe fodder for good debates about the end times. And the book of Daniel certainly does speak to some of these things, especially in the second half of the book. Uh, But if that's the only reason we turn to Daniel, uh, we run the risk of missing a really important reason that God gave us this book. This book is about living in Babylon. And friends, we live in Babylon. That's not a comment about our culture or any culture in particular. That's just a biblical reality that we can't afford to miss. Uh, We live as exiles and strangers in a world that runs contrary to God, contrary to God's ways, a world system that throughout the Bible is actually described as Babylon. One of my seminary professors observed this. Daniel and his friends find themselves away from theocratic Israel and in the center of pagan social and political life. Given that contemporary Christians have no theocratic homeland, but are called to live in many nations and many social settings, we might suspect that the stories of Daniel 2 through 6 provide much relevant grist for reflection about how Christians today ought to undertake faithful engagement in and service to their societies. The New Testament confirms this suspicion when it portrays the Christian's identity in the world in terms of exile and uses the ancient city of Babylon as an image for describing the cities in which Christians live today. So by paying attention to how Daniel and his friends navigated their exile in Babylon, uh, we learn a thing or two about navigating life in exile in Babylon today. Uh, This book in particular gives us insight not so much into doing life together. Maybe the epistles are a great example of how do we do life together as the church. But this really gives us insight into doing life in the world, surrounded by the world systems that we live in as we await our true king who is returning to establish his kingdom forever. In our passage this morning, in Daniel 2 in particular, uh, it sets up two important contrasts, two contrasts that compel us to trust God as we live as strangers in the world. It contrasts two important realities. We see a contrast between the idols of Babylon and the God of heaven. And we also see a contrast between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. What we see through these two contrasts should give us reason to trust God and to run to Jesus, who is the only refuge for sinners. We can be confident as we live our Christian life and we tell others the good news and we proclaim the gospel of this kingdom, uh, confident that it's true. Just like Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And that gospel has been revealed to us. So we're going to put it like this as we unpack Daniel 2, walking through the story, making mention of some things along the way. We'll focus on these two contrasting things. Contrast number one, empty idols versus the eternal God. And contrast number two, earthly kingdoms versus the everlasting kingdom. Let's look at this first contrast then, empty idols and the eternal God. As we open this story in Daniel 2.1, Uh, The 
the children's song comes to mind, uh, the children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. If only that were true of King Nebuchadnezzar. But it was not the night before Christmas, and the king was not nestled all snug in his bed, and visions of sugar plums were not dancing in his head. Nebuchadnezzar had a recurring dream that absolutely terrified him. Think of that, the greatest man on earth, the most powerful man on earth, and he cannot sleep because of this terrifying dream. Have any of you kids or any of you grown-ups, for that matter, had a dream that was so frightening that you couldn't sleep anymore? Yeah? This was more than the kinds of dreams that we have. This wasn't just the jumbled thoughts of the day sorting themselves out in our sleep. It certainly revolved around Nebuchadnezzar's daily thoughts, as we'll see uh, in the revelation and, and the, of the dream and its interpretation. It was a dream all about the powers of the earth and kings and kingdoms, something Nebuchadnezzar thought about daily. Uh, but this was more than an ordinary dream. This was God revealing through this dream to Nebuchadnezzar his plan and program for history. He was speaking through this dream to the king, and he was showing Nebuchadnezzar his place in that program. But Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by this. He summons the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. You get lists like these in the book of Daniel. If you're familiar with Daniel, uh, you see the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Or later, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music. All of the king's resources, in other words, all of his professionals trained in various kinds of divination and interpreting the signs and seasons and omens and such according to their religious beliefs and customs are summoned to this task of interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Someone has pointed out that whenever you have these lists, we could call them totality lists, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, or the horn, the pipe, the lyre, and so on, uh, you have this totality, this, the whole of whatever the thing is. Let's say it's the whole forces of the world, the whole forces of Babylon standing to one side. And then you usually, over against that, have Daniel or Daniel and his three friends. So you have the totality to one side. And then you have one, two, or three faithful servants of God to the other. It's reminiscent of a photo that I've seen. I don't know if you've seen this photo before. Um, I looked it up to see who the photo was of. There's a photo of this sea of people all saluting the Fuhrer in 1936 in Nazi Germany. It's a picture of August Landmesser. And you have this sea of outstretched hands to salute Hitler. And you have a lone man with his arms crossed standing in the sea of people. There's a totality surrounding him on all sides. And he had a Jewish uh, wife and kids at home out of love for his family, thinking of the family waiting for him at home, everybody is standing on one side and he stands there with his arms crossed. Only in Daniel, it's love for God and his law and faith in his promise. That's what puts Daniel and his friends at odds with the world around them. But it also puts them uniquely positioned to declare the message of God and his kingdom to the kings who will rise and fall throughout the time of their exile. So we find ourselves in this first section of Daniel 2, and we're kind of like a fly on the wall, aren't we, as we hear what happens between the kings, the king and his advisors or his sorcerers and all of these people that he has summoned to reveal this dream. And they're at an impasse. They go back and forth three times. 
Nebuchadnezzar orders them not only to interpret the dream, but to tell him what the dream was. Nobody knows whether he forgot the dream or whether he is testing them. Believe me, I read a lot of people saying both things this week. We can't be sure about whether he forgot the dream. I tend to think that he's testing them, that he knows enough about the dream, that he will know when they tell him what it was and thereby confirm that they're interpreting the dream. That's, that's what I think is playing out in his mind. We do know that the wise men in the court, however, are right. What the king is asking is crazy. It's impossible. Their empty religion and their worthless idols offer no hope and no power for making known to the king the thoughts and the revelation that the God of heaven has made known to him. And it's really the response of the wise men that I want you to focus on. Look with me at Daniel 2, 11, 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11. We see here really two important truths that stand in contrast with God. This contrast between the false gods and the true God, it's really set up in a remarkable way. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Kids, by the way, that's another great Bible line you can use with your parents. Dad says, go clean your room. The thing that the king asks is difficult. But seriously, did you, did, you catch, did you catch it? These two important statements. One, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. And the second statement, no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. These two statements from the pagan wise men cue up important truths that really contrast the worthless idols, the worthless idols and the wonderful true and living God we serve Psalm 115.4 and verse 9, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. O Israel, trust in the Lord. The idols of the nations are works of human hands, cannot give the answers to divine mysteries. Whether those idols are Marduk or Wall Street, fortune tellers or 401ks, whether those idols are glorious kingdoms or a successful career or popularity or comfort or ease or security or cultural acceptance, ultimate answers to life's ultimate questions and hope and meaning in the chaos in which we find ourselves cannot be found in the idols of the world. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. We serve a God who not only reveals mysteries, he reveals mysteries in the flesh by coming in the flesh, dwelling among his people to reveal his will for our salvation. Hebrews 1 tells us, verses 1 and 2, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, even through dreams. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Oh, but there would come a day, friends, when a man on earth would reveal God's will in the flesh for our salvation, revealing his will and his victory and his love for his people when Jesus Christ came and dwelt among us to save us. But that's jumping ahead of the story of Scripture, and it's jumping ahead of the story of Daniel too. We'll look more at that in a moment. 
something to be aware of is that Old Testament narrative story is very sparing in its details. So why is this statement from the Babylonian wise men about their God so crucial that Daniel includes it? Well, why would this be crucial if you were someone who had gone through the exile and you thought God had abandoned you like we looked at last week? This would be important, wouldn't it? The heart of Judah's exile was removal from God's presence, banished from God's dwelling among his people. Exodus 29, 45-46, God had said, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What a blessing that was. And then what an excruciating punishment and curse to have that blessing removed to be sent outside the camp, removed from the place of God's presence. It's this picture of final judgment, a picture that was set up when Adam and Eve were first banished from the place of God's presence in the garden. And then Israel is cast out of the place of God's presence into exile. But this reference by the wise men that the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh sets up this remarkable revelation to come of this kingdom that would come of this king who would come and be established forever. Looking ahead to the promise being fulfilled, God does dwell among his people. He will dwell among them face to face forever. The exile isn't the end of the story for those who are clinging to this promise. And there's hope for us in this promise too. We look around on our Babylon, the world in which we live. Uh, It might be tempting to despair and think, God doesn't dwell with human flesh. Never seen him. Living by faith. But he does dwell with his people. He dwells with us by his spirit. He just like he, just like with Daniel and his friends, as they cry out to God and he hears them and he gives them what they need. God gives us what we need. God guides us as we serve him. God comes to our rescue. And there's hope for us in this as well. So that's the first contrast: the empty idols versus the eternal God. Let me summarize a bit of the story now uh, to get us from this first contrast to the second this important vision and its description and interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar commands that all the wise men in Babylon be put to death. It's like, great, Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, that's really going to help the situation. But that's what these kings did. So he decides, off with all their heads. Arioch comes to Daniel's door because Daniel and his friends, if you remember, they were wise men. They were trained in, in, in this... Um, in Daniel 1, they were trained in these arts and these ways. Arioch, the captain of the guard, comes to carry out this order to execute Daniel. And we read the following in verses 14 to 16. (laughs) The the executioner is at your door, right? And Daniel replies with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill all the wise men in Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Two quick side notes here. One practical and one about our prayers. First, notice Daniel's prudence and discretion. His prudence and discretion. It's worth remembering. Not bluster, not indignation, not angry rants on Facebook or tweet storms on Twitter. Prudence and discretion. Certainly a lesson for us navigating the difficulties of pilgrim life in a world that's hostile to God and his people. Prudence and discretion. Another thing, Daniel requests uh, that the king set up a time, set the appointment, and he'll give the king the dream and the interpretation. 
And it's only then we read the following. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his three friends and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I love that, don't you? That's faith. That's faith. Before the prayers are even lifted up, Daniel sets the appointment. He says, it's okay, king. My God will tell me the answer to your question. And then he goes to his friends and says, we better start praying. He trusts his God to deliver him and his friends. And then they pray. It's interesting, isn't it? For all of our praying, do we actually pray in faith to a God who answers? With faith that God will answer? In Acts 12, the church is gathered in Jerusalem praying for Peter to be released in prison. The people of God under the thumb of another empire, which will factor into what we're about to see. An angel appears to the prison, busts Peter out of prison, and then leads him to this uh, prayer meeting where the saints are praying for him to be released. And he knocks on the gate, and little Rhoda comes out and recognizes Peter's voice. So what does Rhoda do? She leaves Peter standing at the gate, and she runs back into the prayer meeting and says, Peter's here. And they say, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You saw a ghost. It must be his angel. I think the ESV translates it. Did they ever think maybe, just maybe, God answered their prayers? That they were gathered there praying for? Thomas Watson said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but remember, it was prayer that fetched the angel. We need to remember this. Let's cultivate that kind of faith in a God who hears and answers the prayers of his people. So picking up now, verse 19, we see God is praised for who he is. The eternal God who outstrips all the idols of the world. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to them, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So we've seen the empty idols versus the eternal God. Let's see now the earthly kingdoms versus the eternal kingdom. Stick with the reading here. It's a long reading but it's important to hear this section out. Verse 25, Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king his interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Notice how Daniel frames that totality list that we looked at earlier. It's never really been uh, Daniel or Rakshak and Benny against all of the totality of everything that the king had. It's always been the totality list, uh, the enchanters and the sorcerers and the lyre and the tripe and the targon, whatever the rest of the instruments are, against the true and living God that Daniel serves. There is a God in heaven 
who reveals mysteries. Picking up in verse 29, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and his interpretation, sure. Well, this is the part of the chapter where we could spend years. We're close to the end of the sermon, so that makes you nervous. We could spend 70 weeks looking at this but I promise you we won't. Just a couple of things about the makeup of this statue. The only earthly kingdom identified in Daniel's interpretation of the dream is the head of gold, representing Nebuchadnezzar's reign in Babylon. Even the later uh, chapters of Daniel, which get into more specifics about the future, uh, we don't have it spelled out for us. We don't have it spelled out for us, and maybe there's good reason for that. As it pertains to history, though the text itself does not tell us, so we have to recognize that, I think the traditional view is right, that these four kingdoms represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, respectively. We could talk about how that relates to all the other sorts of views another time, but this seems to track with historical reflection on what has unfolded in history and what the various symbols representing the kingdoms mean. Uh, but most importantly, it explains the appearance of the stone that crushes all worldly power 
at the end of the vision in the days of Rome. For it was in those days, Luke 2, 1-7, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You know how that story plays out, right? The king is born. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. A baby laid in a manger to whom wise men bowed down, giving them gifts, giving him the gifts fit for a king. As the prophet Isaiah foretold, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In the days of those kings, the king of kings was born. Shepherds rejoiced. Wise men bowed down. Herod trembled. Local authorities cried out about his followers. These men have turned the world upside down. So given this broad trajectory, uh, I believe the point of the dream and its interpretation is not a thorough, comprehensive chronology of events to come, events future to Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel. I think the point is a theological portrait of the kingdoms of the world over against the kingdom of God. It's the contest between the statue and the stone. Earthly kingdoms versus the eternal kingdom. The establishment of that kingdom at the first coming of Jesus brought into fullness and consummation when our king returns on the final day. Beyond that, I'm content to confine my opinions to what Daniel says the dream's interpretation is. A preacher I listened to this week made that point, and it was very freeing. He says, let's stick to the text. Daniel says the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. I'm not sure further interpretation helps us a whole lot when Daniel says this is the interpretation. So we could spend more time on the details, but it's important we ask a question. What does this interpretation teach Nebuchadnezzar? What does it teach you and me today? First of all, all earthly power owes to the sovereign plan of God. All earthly power owes to the sovereign plan of God. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. You're the head of gold. Maybe conveniently or providentially, Daniel is able to, able to say, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. I'm sure that was a relief to Daniel. But the interpretation also puts Nebuchadnezzar in his place because it says, God has given you this kingdom. The God of heaven has given it to you. It's as much of a warning as it is an invitation to Nebuchadnezzar. Your power comes from God. Toward the end of our chapter, which we won't spend much time on, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in some ways says Daniel's God is a great God. Some people wonder if he was converted or not. As the rest of Daniel plays out, it certainly seems that if he was, this was not the time. It's like, of all the gods, your God is a pretty great one. But this is a warning to Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who's given you this power. What will you do with that? If you know ahead in the story, the very next chapter, he decides to build a giant image and tell everyone to worship it. I don't think he got it. But God gave him the kingdom. All earthly power owes to the sovereign plan of God. It's the God of heaven who gives Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom, and then Nebuchadnezzar passes from the scene. And then you have the Medo-Persians. You have Cyrus by the end of Daniel. God has given all of these kings their power. Isaiah 45.1 says, Thus the Lord to Cyrus has anointed 
says, whom I have taken by my right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to put doors before him so that gates will not be shut. It was true of Pharaoh under whom God's people were enslaved. The Lord said to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The same is true with each successive kingdom, one giving away to another and to another and to another. Not only up to the first coming of this stone that crushes the kingdoms, but throughout history. We're living in exile, serving God by faith, and those kings under whom we serve, those nations in which we live, all of them are appointed and given their power by God. That's why we read in 1 Peter 2, 11 and following, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So first, all earthly power owes to the sovereign plan of God. The kings of the earth should take note. And we, God's people who live under these rulers appointed by God, should act accordingly. Second, and finally, all earthly power will end, but God's kingdom is forever. Pulling together from the dream and its interpretation, the description of the stone. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. This image, it might have puzzled Nebuchadnezzar, this great and powerful king. You mean to tell me a rock cut from a mountain will do this? A stone will crush my great empire and all the empires that follow it? A stone that grows into a mountain and fills the whole earth? What is that? But if you were one of the exiles from Judah, you would know exactly what this image meant. You would know what this picture was. Genesis 49:24. God is called the shepherd, the stone of Israel. This imagery is picked up in the prophecies of the coming Messiah. A stone upon whom men would fall and be crushed, or a cornerstone. It, it, it develops and it, it grows. And then Jesus pulls some of these prophecies together with this image in Daniel when he says in Luke, Speaking to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, these religious leaders challenging his authority, he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that was written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It must have been madness to Nebuchadnezzar that this unassuming stone would topple empires. It seemed crazy to the religious leaders in Israel in Jesus' day. A carpenter's son? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Micah 5.2 But to you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me 
one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, a reference to Daniel 7. A king from Judah. It's incredible, isn't it? The king to crush all kings. The king, the stone that pulverizes the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It comes from the people who are under Nebuchadnezzar's thumb. One who would come from Judah. The wisdom of God putting to shame the wisdom of the world. You can't make this stuff up. It's incredible. The kingdom of Jesus today is growing into a mountain. Right now, at this moment, filling the whole earth from Judah to Fakir County to the Fulani people to Cuba and Afghanistan and Iraq and Mexico and Brazil. We hear three languages every day in our service or every week. The kingdom is growing into a mountain. And that kingdom, the rule and reign of Jesus, the most unlikely of kings has conquered in the most unlikely of ways through death and suffering and burial and then resurrection on behalf of his people. Whether you're a wicked pagan named Nebuchadnezzar or the religious leaders of Israel who oppose their Messiah or a person living in Warrington, Virginia, these contrasting things we've looked at, the empty idols and the eternal God, the earthly kingdoms and the everlasting kingdom, they present a choice to you. There's a path to take, a decision that you must make. The king has come and he has conquered through death for sinners and this kingdom is growing and spreading. This stone will crush all earthly powers forever. All of the power of the world will fade. All of its glory will end. His kingdom is forever. So the question is, will you stumble over the stone? Will you oppose this kingdom by staking your claim with the earthly powers? Or will you follow this king? Will you let this king be the rock of your salvation? He's already taken that crushing blow for you. So will you stand against him? Will you be transferred to his kingdom of light? Psalm 2, 7 through 12, and I close with this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Don't trust the statue. Turn to the stone. He is a refuge for sinners who run to him. You can trust him. His word is true and his kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this remarkable picture of your wisdom, your might. Wisdom that shames the wise men of this world. Might that knows no earthly rivals. Give us the faith of Daniel and his friends to endure in our exile and pilgrimage in this world as we await the return of our king and the consummation of his kingdom. May we run to the stone. May we run to the rock, to the refuge that Jesus is. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.